0: how do russians feel about the war in ukraine what information are they getting about the war what about the reports of people leaving especially people in the tech world but certainly in other fields as well are russians protesting the war or has there been too much repression and disinformation for them to want to do that Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute and the grad- at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Anna Jernina, a postdoctoral researcher at the Helsinki Institute of Urban and Re- Regional Research in Finland. She received her PhD in sociology from the CUNY Graduate Center two years ago with a dissertation on Housing Strategies and Political Mobilization in Moscow's Renovation. Uh, and that dissertation won the uh, Dissertation of the Year Award of the American Sociological Association's section on collective behavior and social movements. She's written a chapter on Russians' protests, protests against Putin in a forthcoming book edited by Jim Jasper and a number of graduate student colleagues at the CUNY Graduate Center, including previous International Horizons interviewee Jessica Malbacher, who's a specialist on Hong Kong, Thanks so much for being with us today, Anna Zjelny.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Great to have you. So you're in Finland. And I wonder, I mean, in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Finns have been, as you know, moving toward the the idea of joining NATO along with the Swedes. So what's the mood of the people in the country? Are they concerned that the war is going to spill over to them?
1: Well, uh, especially in the first days or even weeks after the invasion, you could really sense it here that people were concerned and there was, well, they were, many people were scared and they were quite explicit about their feelings. And I think, um, the increase in, um, support for NATO membership kind of reflects that sentiment. Um, I think. When the last polls came out, the support was somewhere in the area of 60% of, uh, of those who participated in the poll. So that's quite a lot compared to uh, the poll that t- took place a couple of years ago. And back then it was like 20% or something. So it really affected people in Finland. And I think, um, it's going to happen sooner or later. Although there are also voices kind of opposing NATO membership. Also because of uh, the past relationships of the country with Russia, there's of course uh, a very complicated history between the two countries, but it's also a very close neighbor. And there's also another fear, not just the fear of invasion, but also the fear of kind of provoking Russia to do something um, that that Finland doesn't want or need. So there's like this kind of, double sentiment going on.
0: Well, yes, it would seem to be a very complicated position to be in, And of course, the Finns have had a long, you know, and and complicated, uh, delicate relationship with Russia uh, that, you know, for a long time went by the name, had a name for itself, namely Finlandization, right? And it meant a certain kind of neutrality in regard to international affairs and uh, not antagonizing Russia. So it's obviously very much implicated in the current, the whole question of what provoked Putin to do this, you know, uh, how people should think about the idea of expanding NATO in the middle of this conflict. Um, But in any case, you know, it's not surprising that the Finns would have complicated and perhaps contradictory views about this question, uh, because that's surely the case more broadly. Um, So let's turn to uh, what's going on in Russia. You're a Russian national um, and... You know, you must have a sense of how much, I mean, there's a lot of talk about uh, widespread support or at least Putin is putting out the idea that there's widespread support in Russia for the war or what used to be the special military operation. Uh, But many suggest that this is really just a result of the fact that people are afraid to say anything negative uh, to an interviewer. So what's your sense of the situation?
1: This is a very interesting question, actually, because polls in Russia in an authoritarian state have been a contested topic for a while now. So it's not just the war that changed how people respond to the polls uh, under authoritarianism. Uh, And researchers and like political sociologists and philosophers working in Russia have pointed out that... The authoritarian regimes like to use polls as kind of a weapon to rather shape public opinion and not just to collect it. So it was not always clear whether you could trust the polls even before the war. But when the war started, it became, of course, even more complex. Um, and I think these days uh, you can find so many discussions um, uh, on like... A, Online, on Twitter, in the sociology journals, even talking about whether we can trust those polls or not. But you're right. Most of them show, um, kind of the majority support, um, for the special operation, because remember that you cannot call it war in Russia because it's illegal. You can really be uh, persecuted for just saying, the the word war when referring to to the events in uh, Ukraine because they passed a new legislation to completely kind of control the discourse. So you cannot call it a war, but the polls usually ask about the actions in Ukraine or the special operation in Ukraine. And it is true that most of them show support in the area of like 50 to 70%. But again, it depends on how... Uh, the pollsters formulate a question and there's a lot of discussion about that. So it's not just the fear, but also the kind of prompting that's included in the in the way that f- the question is phrased that kind of pushes people to answer the correct way. So it's not just the fear, it's also the kind of the deliberate strategic work of the polling agencies who are often not independent. But it's also true that even the relatively independent pollsters still uh, kind of um, show higher levels of support than one would hope for. But again, I just need to point out that it depends a lot on uh, how the question is formulated, how people really, how well they are informed about the events, because that's also something that uh, re- scholars have pointed out, that it doesn't make much sense to ask a person about something, uh, their opinion about something that they don't really think about they have no kind of pre-existing opinion and
0: so, uh, so is it is uh, sorry to interrupt but is it your sense that there are a lot of people who aren't even really thinking about this i mean i had the impression that there was an yes. enormous amount of of uh, coverage if that's the right word on russian televised news that was obviously meant to give people you know a particular view of how things are going in ukraine
1: Sure yes uh, propaganda is uh, at full swing it's working on television and other media but it's, it's kind of it's another important piece of political context here that russia again as an authoritarian state has very impressive uh, kind of degree of political apathy and just political uh, rejection people don't want to know about it and they actively exclude any kind of information that would disrupt their like normal lives or their positive uh, outlook on life. So that's something I have written about, that political apathy is something that has been produced in Russia over the past couple of decades. People think politics is a dirty thing. They don't want to know about it. They don't want to have anything to do uh, with politics. And that's kind of a standard response. So when whenever something political is asked of you, you just say, "Oh, that's not something I know anything about or want to know anything about." Uh but also I want to refer to to work of um some Russian colleagues who have explored propaganda and have uh studied uh public opinion in Russia today. So for example uh, maxim Lyukov, a sociologist uh, from russia who currently works in uh, uh, in the uk uh, has summarized reason some reasons why uh, for example polls should be taken with a grain of salt and one of the reasons is exactly this that people often do not have a formulated opinion despite all the propaganda and despite all the uh, kind of flow of uh, information and i think Yes, it is very important to keep in mind that people actively work to ignore it. But then again, there are people who are um, listening to propaganda and it's really kind of efficient the way propaganda works in Russia. And it's even, even people who are kind of uh, prepared um, and they uh, have all the right information, the correct information about the war, when they start watching the Russian TV they kind of notice this effect that they start doubting even their already existing and fact-checked views. So it's a powerful tool and it's uh, wrong to underestimate it. It works. And again, I'm going to refer to uh, a project that's been published in um, Open Democracy. It's a project by my colleagues from the public sociology laboratory in Svetlana Yerpulhova, for example. Uh, they have collected uh, qualitative interviews with people who oppose the war and support the war to figure out why they do or do not support the war, to kind of supplement this quantitative data from the polls. And what they found out was, I think it's very interesting, that there are more than one way to support the war, more than one reason to say yes to the question whether you support uh, the war effort or not. And propaganda is, of course, one of those reasons that people are just like watching the news and they believe everything they hear but then another interesting reason to say yes is um that people just kind of fall back to default answers when they don't have an opinion but all they hear around them is that okay there's a war going on and our country is fighting for whatever values in in this war even if they don't have enough information or they don't have an opinion, they would just say yes, because it sounds like a socially appropriate kind of answer. So it's not uh, necessarily a very formulated and kind of supported opinion that people would defend. That's what I'm trying to
0: say. Right. So... I mean, there are a couple of areas related, I suppose, to propaganda that I want to explore with you. And and these are, I think, really in your area of expertise in particular, and and that is about protest. You know, we heard early on about people going out and, you know, holding up signs. And then, of course, the police would come generally fairly quickly. And, you know, it seemed to me also early on, although I don't think we hear this quite so much lately, you know, has been a discussion about, you know, uh, regime change and that Putin needs to be removed from power, which I've always thought was, you know, really needlessly provocative. I mean, it just gives him a reason to fight to the very end and to do who knows what along the way. But, um, you know, one of the things that it seems to me has kept him in power all these years is indeed precisely his, you know, ability to repress dissent. So I wonder if you could talk about, you know, how the repression has kind of developed or unfolded over the last 20 years of his rule um, and, you know, tell us what you know about what's happening on the protest front. I mean, has that been effectively squelched as a result of the repression early on or what's happening?
1: Uh, well, to kind of give a, a broader overview of what was happening with the protest and protest culture in Russia one would have to go back 10 years because this year it's exactly 10 years since the most recent largest uh, anti-regime protest uh, in in Russia that the so-called balotnaya or the winter revolution or whatever you want to call it there are several nicknames and I think that was kind of a an important threshold after the Bolotnaya protests, which were, again, the biggest, I think, event of this kind in, in uh, the post socialist history of Russia. Um, after that, the repression has increased steadily. And I think, again, I would just repeat this idea that repression and kind of political discouragement, the cultivation of apathy, they go hand in hand, really. Because again, uh, frustration, disappointment, those are the important emotional outcomes of uh, an unsuccessful protest, which Balotne was, because the regime change back then didn't happen. Um, They didn't... So the the protest was about electoral fraud, basically. People were trying to demand um, a recount of the votes in a parliamentary election, which didn't happen. So... One of the biggest rallies was brutally repressed and it was exactly 10 years ago. It was on uh, May the 6th. After that day, of course, people were, grew more afraid of participating in uh, such events. Also, the kind of the repress, the repressive machine itself became more aggressive. And um, basically, it would turn to this uh, tactic that I think the kind of Stalinist regime was famous for, a very random attack on people. So you could participate in a protest and have experienced no consequences, but you could also be punished severely for doing something really minor. And this kind of unpredictability of repression is, I think, what really keeps people um, wary and since then it all kind of um deteriorated gradually the new legislation to uh to repress or to kind of discourage uh the nonprofits um the human rights uh, advocates from um doing their jobs all that really didn't help and but now it's of course a, a different page in um, in Russia's political history. Also because kind of this um, the beginning of the war uh, is associated with the new legislation that's even more repressive. Uh, like I said earlier, you can't even call the war what it is. You can't use the word war, but you can also just be punished for. Um, Bringing up this uh topic in a conversation um people can be punished for um uh, basically standing in a, in um, somewhere outside with a, a banner with a quote from um nineteen eighty four or something like that. so basically anything can become uh prosecutable. The new legislation this new kind of anti fake information legislation that was passed uh really scared people and reduced the capacity of people to protest uh, in the regular usual ways. But at first, before this new um, legislation was uh, passed and implemented, people really turned to the usual kind of tools and ways of uh, protesting. So they went out. Uh, they tried to assemble in the usual um, protest spots because, normally basically every big russian city has a traditional spot where people would just go uh
0: pushkin anti- square or something yes
1: exactly exactly there are like those anticipated protest locations uh and uh, that happened uh because even um there 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 was no kind of central call for action people just knew that they had to go out and uh visit those particular places. For example, in St. Petersburg, it's the Gostyny Dvor uh, on Nevsky Prospect. So those are the classic kind of protest spots where people would just go. But not just the people were the ones who knew where to assemble, but also the police. And the police was waiting there for them with, uh, of course, all the gear and equipment. And it was... uh, Just a very kind of scary sight just to see those videos and uh, pictures from uh, all over Russia showing people just being arrested immediately after they just set foot uh, in those areas. And um, most of the kind of central squares in the cities were fenced off. So that was just visually um, a very different sight from even the previous kind of episodes, uh, protest episodes. Uh, But still, people would go out and protest and get arrested. And um, it went on for days and weeks. Uh, But then uh, it just became, I think, obvious that those protests were not working in a way that you normally expect them to work. And by that, I mean they were not creating a picture of like millions of people marching down the street because... They just couldn't assemble. It was just technically not possible. So um, it became clear that this wasn't working in this sense. But also, the new legislation made it so much scarier to protest in in in, in this way. Uh, but still, the protest did not uh, disappear. I think it's a very interesting transformation that uh, the kind of the contemporary Russian anti-war protest is uh, going through because now you see all sorts of kind of alternative techniques how people can show their discontent and it's amazing how much for example art means these days street art but also performance art there are so uh, many interesting creative events that people come up with to just show that they disagree with the um current foreign policy or the special operation or whatever word you want to use. Um, and it's also very interesting. I think that one of the largest and most organized, uh, anti-war movements, uh, currently is the feminist anti-war resistance. Uh, basically they are the one remaining network of activists and, um, kind of politically, uh, oriented people, um, Suggesting alternative ways to protest. And these ways of the feminist or the quiet protest include things like, for example, switching price tags in supermarkets with, uh, like stickers containing some information about the war or something like that, or writing, um, uh, like an anti-war slogan or a message on, a uh, uh, on banknotes and using them to pay for stuff and, hoping that people will get uh, those banknotes um, with the, with those messages. So things like that are happening, but again, they are still risky. Uh, it sounds like something small and kind of low risk, but actually even those s- small events and artistic expressions are risky because I think I, I mentioned it uh, before that even when someone goes out and just tries to stand somewhere in the open with a banner, uh, for example, there was um, an internet meme recently, but it really represents what's going on, the degree of repression, uh, where a person couldn't stand uh, openly with a banner saying war and peace, basically the the cover of uh, the famous Tolstoy's book. Because it had the w- word "war on it, so it had to be replaced with special operations, so things like that like even just very um kind of ridiculous um, reasons uh, can get you arrested, but I also sure. want yeah
0: well i I mean I don't want to cut you off, but I do want to sort of get into the question um, you know, the, back to this issue of sort of regime change or getting rid of Putin. I mean, it strikes me as you know as though there's a reason he's been in power for 20 plus years, uh, and the idea that he's going to you know somehow easily be removed. Now I don't you know he's a KGB guy. He knows how to <laughs> he knows how to whack people that you don't want around. So presumably he set all kinds of uh, you know sort of whatever procedures mechanisms in place in order to make sure that that doesn't Happened to him and i've often thought that you know when you when they show us these pictures of him sitting 20 feet away from the person he's talking to antonio Guterres of you know the head of the un uh and people well is he paranoid i i it's sort of like i maybe he's paranoid but even paranoids have enemies right and uh i think he this is part of how he has stayed in power he has been cautious he has made sure there are no challengers no threats that can really get at him so i mean but i'm no russia specialist so i wonder what you would say about that
1: well uh we don't know much about the situation within the elites around him right because they are very protective about that like basically we just don't know what's going on there but it also creates an atmosphere where rumors can spread and emerge and like you can you probably know that there are now rumors circulating that he has cancer that there's like a coup um uh, kind of brewing but there's no way to know what actually is going on and uh to be honest uh like all this talk about a coup against Putin doesn't look as a good prospect either just because there are no better guys around him to replace him you know so I I heard it from people a lot that everybody is of course kind of they keep their fingers crossed that he, he, something would happen to him. But then, like, if you think about it, who would to re- be there to replace him? They're much worse or, or even as, as, as just as bad as he is. So there's no, um, kind of hope in, in this regard. So if it's a coup, it's not helpful. <laughs> That's what I would say because the, like, the actual political opposition is kind of destroyed. Basically the main, um, challenger is in prison nearly poisoned um when was that two years ago already or one year ago i think something like that yeah yeah. um so it's not clear how that would benefit the country or how that would benefit the how how that would benefit ukraine even We, we just don't know
0: right so okay uh you may or may not know the famous book by albert hirschman called exit voice and loyalty but uh exit and voice you know as we know from his book are the two kind of fundamental uh, alternatives that people are confronted with in situations of what he calls decline in firms organizations and states which arguably uh, russia has been facing shall we say so uh, we know that the voice option has been largely shut down uh, and we also know at least early on that, you know, some significant number of people seem to be leaving Russia, kind of throwing, uh, throwing up their hands and saying we simply see no future for ourselves here. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, who that is or was? Is it still possible to leave? Are more people leaving? You know, those kinds of, those kinds of exit questions.
1: People do exit. And uh, actually, just today, I think the Federal Bureau of Statistics in Russia has published new numbers on how many people are leaving the country. And it's just incredible. Since the beginning of this year, so in the first, I think, what is it now, three and something months uh, of 2022, almost 4 million people have left the country, which is Almost as much as um, the kind of Ukraine. out-migration in um, in the previous 20 years. Uh-huh. So people have been leaving, of course, there, there was this kind of constant migration out of Russia, but those numbers are just striking. This is, uh, so I think it's like 5 million who left before like 2020 or 2018, something like that. But those just first months of 2022 like 3.8 million people have left. And it's also kind of interesting how people still manage to leave d- despite coronavirus and whatnot because there are all these travel restrictions. You can't really go everywhere if you if you want to leave Russia. You also need a visa. You need like all sorts of things. It's not an easy feat. But people still live and um, they go to countries that uh, have kind of an easier... Um, visa regime, for example, the um, countries like Georgia, Armenia, hundreds of thousands of people went uh, there. Um, And some people are just leaving even without having any long term plans. It was um, a very quick decision to leave as soon as possible after the war started. And it became clear that it's not going to end soon. Um, But there's
0: there's some indication that uh, Putin actually wants some of these people to leave, that he's kind of, you know, showing them the door. I mean, pushing them, I'm not sure exactly how much, but I guess there was a piece in the New York Times just in the last few days about people who kind of fit this bill. A political scientist in Moscow, I think, uh, named Shulman, I think, Shulman. Um, And, uh, you know, it reminded me of the old days of East Germany, where the regime, you know, as an alternative to incarcerating people would actually just push them out. And often they didn't want to leave in in East German times because they wanted to stay and sort of fight the good fight. But, you know, that was precisely the reason the government wanted them out. They were bad publicity. And uh, so I wonder how much of that sort of thing might be going on.
1: That might be going on, but uh, there are not too many political scientists in in Russia, right? And not too many kind of vocal uh, journalists, uh, oppositional journalists who, who... It's definitely more people leaving than there are those <laughs> professions. So one con- big concern for, I think, the regime is now that there are many tech professionals or just like those IT professionals leaving. And it immediately became clear that they don't really want them to go because they are a a huge part of the country's well-being. And um, those are educated um, kind of members of this innovative uh, economy. And they are needed. And actually, the reason it became clear right away that the country kind of wants them, wants to keep them, uh, were all these news about people trying to leave and being held at the airports for questioning. And, and one of the questions was like, are you working for IT or are you doing something that's important for the economy? And, uh, it became clear that some occupations are kind of more at risk of, um, more at risk when they try to, to travel. Uh, but yes, it, Initially, it was relatively easy, especially um, uh, until the flights were not all shut down because now there are just physically not many ways how you can leave the country because you, you can either go by bus, and, but that's also kind of a limited number of options. You cannot fly anywhere. And now it's much more complicated just to organize a trip uh but also it seems that even uh in in these past few weeks the restrictions on leaving the country have increased because they still use the coronavirus restrictions to to uh to limit uh who can leave the country so it's not clear whether it is like, like there's no proof that those new measures are related to the war because again they cannot have any war legislation they can't have any war related restrictions because there's because there is no war war. exactly like they can't really do anything uh using the war as an excuse but they can still use uh the corona pandemic which is what's happening for example like i am in finland and i know a lot about people trying to to cross the russian finnish border because it's one of the two basically remaining um uh, borders that you can use to go to Europe. Uh, and it's becoming increasingly more difficult uh, because the kind of the Russian side of the border takes first, it usually takes hours just to cross that border because people are, again, being held for questioning. Uh, the border guards require um, unexpected kind of documents and paperwork from people citing coronavirus uh, restrictions. So Yes, I mean, it's kind of an unofficial uh, piece of evidence for the increasing restrictions, but it is a piece of evidence.
0: Interesting. So maybe one last question. Um, You know, you're a Russian national, as we've already mentioned. Have you been to Russia lately?
1: I have. Actually, I I went uh there maybe like two weeks after the invasion because, again, Uh I, I needed some paperwork done. Mm -hmm. and I I had no choice but to go Mm -hmm. Uh, but back then things are escalating so quickly when I went what what was it early March Mm -hmm. uh, it was so much different than what it is now the the, kind of the mobility is much more restricted and to be honest um, I would suggest everyone to think twice before going to Russia these days so
0: yeah so presumably because you might not come back.
1: Well, there's a there's a risk. and There's a lot of uncertainty yeah. involved in right. uh, every trip right. like that.
0: Right. Well, I'm sure it's a very difficult situation to be in. And uh, I wish you and everyone in the region all the best and hope that this war comes to an end soon. Although I have to confess that doesn't seem to be the consensus of uh, informed opinion at this point. In any case, uh, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Anna Jernina of the Helsinki Institute of Urban Regional search for sharing her insights about russian public opinion and russian society in regard to the ukraine war uh, remember to subscribe and rate international horizons on soundcloud spotify and Apple podcasts i want to thank osvaldo mena aguilar for his technical assistance meryl savner for helping put this interview together and to acknowledge duncan mckay for sharing his song international horizons as the theme music for this show This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.